This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. To episode 149 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week we discuss Rob Reiner's 1987 film, The Princess Bride. So if you can believe it, listener, this episode, actually today, this episode yeah. will come out two days later, but today, Tuesday, the 18th, is the three year anniversary of Ink to Film. It's uh, three years since we've posted our first episode covering Stephen King's It. Um, it definitely hasn't felt like three years to me. At times, I feel like it has. Maybe during this quarantine, it definitely has. But I, I just can't believe it's been three years. And thank everybody so much for the for the support. And um, we made some social media posts earlier. Luke mentioned in the post we would not be still doing this if not for the support of people actually listening to the podcast. So thank you so much. Yeah, well said. Three years, one hundred and forty nine episodes with this one. Uh, next week we'll be hitting 150 so we're kind of stacking milestones back to back here um but yeah three years is is a you know it's a big amount of time to devote to something and i definitely feel like over time we've uh learned a lot i know i have um i know a lot more about films now than i ever did i feel like i've dug more into books than i ever had before and uh and that's just the tip of the iceberg of things that i've learned from doing this podcast so um, it's been a great time, and yeah, I'm grateful that it's something that we have an audience for, and uh, definitely appreciate everybody's support uh, these last three years. Absolutely, cheers to cheers to you. I'm gonna, I'm drinking some whiskey right now, so cheers. Yeah, cheers, cheers. So we are discussing the Princess Bride, the film. Last week we discussed the book, um, and I said I've said multiple times this is this is one of my favorite movies, and watching it this time was no different. It's a comfort movie for me, mm. and I. I think it's a movie that grows with you. Um, like as a kid, I feel like I appreciated it for different for different reasons, and as time has gone on, I've appreciated it for different comedic elements or like meta commentaries that are being made and allegory maybe sometimes. And I just I don't know. I think there's a lot to love in this movie. It's it just feels like purely what movies are um, when it when things go well. You know, when everything comes together, you get sort of magic on screen. I feel like this movie definitely represents just like magic in a very unique way. It's it's I think there's we've talked a lot and especially in our book episode about how there is it's sort of doing everything that fantasy's done before and I think that's the same for the for the movie in certain ways and doing things that fantasy movies specifically have done before as well. But it's that nobody's done this since this. You know, like people may have tried, but it's sort of unique unto itself. Yeah. It is a very unique movie, absolutely. Um, I spoke last week a little bit about how I have been kind of mixed on this movie historically. Watching it this time, um, it, it didn't completely erase all of the sort of feelings I had about it that were maybe a little more mixed, but um, some of them went away. And I think reading the book first really helped kind of enrich the experience for me. And... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it, like you said, it's a comforting movie. It's uh, it's a very happy movie, right? It's a very, it makes you feel good watching this movie. There, there's very mm -hmm. little about it that's gonna 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 hit you the wrong way. <laughs> um, and I can see why people love it. It's funny. A lot of a lot of the comedy really holds up. Um, a lot of the performances are iconic, and it also has. I was thinking about this. It has a script that. I feel like you you read this script and you don't you're like either this could be amazing or this movie could be terrible, um, and it's going to depend on a lot of things. And because like the the exact way that like the three villain like th I call them the three villains, but they're not villains. It's, two, it's one villain and two they're his two henchmen, right? Um, the way that they interact with the man in black, um, it ends up being so fun and enjoyable, whereas in a different 
filmmaker's hands or like a different alternate version of this movie, alternate universe version of this movie, it could be super cheesy and not hit that like hit that perfect note it needs to hit to land somewhere that is like making fun of itself, but taking itself seriously enough to where you can take it seriously too, all while having a good time. Um, and I, I want to give it credit for finding that tone, which I think is very hard to do. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's it's sort of a disaster. This this movie was a disaster waiting to happen. I think not, you know, not directed perfectly, not perform. I think without the performances, you don't have anything. I think that like you, this could have been a, a forgettable movie. But you have, you know, the interesting framing device, which was, you know, as we've talked about, it's taken straight from the book. And I think the book does a much better job of making that framing device inter- more interesting even than the movie does. Yeah, I would say it's it's a very watered down version of the framing right. device. It's very simplified. It's really just kind of one moment of the of the frame that you get in the book where it's like specifically him reading it to his son, which is only mm-hmm. like kind of a piece of the framing device in the book, I guess. Yeah. And yet by the end, it still works for me. Like the, the grandfather, the, the, you know, the grandson who's like reluctant to hear the story eventually by the end wants grandfather to come back and read more stories. So right. like it, it ends up working and serving sort of the same purpose, but it doesn't get as meta and crazy into telling the story like the, like the book does. But I also want to say that I think having the narration built into the story um, sort of keeps it moving along. You know, I think I think in order to to scrape off some time in the beginning and the end and to to explain things with with dialogue and and just sort of setting the story up, things that people would normally get annoyed with. It's a built in mechanic of the story. So I think it's forgiven. You know, early on, it's like we're given all these places and all these all these character names and we sort of just jump to the certain scenes that that shine in the story in the book itself. So it's interesting how, you know, the abridgment that we talked about that Goldman is doing of uh, Morgenstern's material, we then get the adaptation is also co- sort of taking liberties where it needs to to cut cut for time and to sort of dig down to what the film needed to be. And and I will say that about the film, the pacing's great. I think like it, it flies by. Yeah, hour and a half movie. It's perfect length. It um, There's no parts that I'm like, oh, I got to skip this. You know, I felt the entire time engaged and I've seen it a million times. Yeah. In regards to the framing device, in the movie, we are we are the boy in the bed being told the story. He is the sort of audience stand-in, mm-hmm. right? Who's a little bit skeptical at first, then is bought into it. Um, I also love the details they gave us at the beginning to establish him as like a sports-loving kid, not a like fantasy-loving kid. Like he doesn't have any like D&D posters on his wall or anything. Right. He's he's mm-hmm. playing a football video game. He's wearing a jersey or he's playing a baseball video game. He's wearing a football jersey, that kind of stuff. So you're winning over this guy, this kid who's already not necessarily the target audience, but he actually is. He just doesn't know it yet. Right. And that's kind of the joy of of that. We can we can be in his place and we can be one over two, um, which I think that works great. I, I do think the key difference between that and the book is the audience is on the side of the author in the book. So when he t- when he is telling his son the story and his son doesn't like the first chapter and then like stops reading it and then it's like later we get the I think the grandson starts is ends up being into it but like it's it's spread out over time. We're on the we're on the dad side. We're on the author side, right? Who is technic who I guess is he's William Goldman but he's also like this fictionalized version of him. Um and I do think that that's a key difference because it would be like if, if in the movie we felt like a stronger connection to the grandfather than we do the kid, which we don't, in my opinion. I think we feel like we're the kid. Right. And that fundamental difference, just it changes a little bit the way I feel about the story. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I, I guess I, I, I do think it works better in a movie to be this way, but it is. I want to highlight that difference for people um, because I do think if you go read the book, that is something you'll find that that sort of changes things up pretty different in a pretty big way. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we've kind of established at this point that like the the framing device, while you know, in 1987 when the film came out, it was people were excited about it. They thought it was really interesting. Um, yeah. You know, this this story being told, the story of a story being told, and what's even crazier to think is just like Goldman was doing it ten years plus prior. Um, yeah, in a novel 70s, in yeah. much in a much deeper context you know like he was really digging into the mind of like 
the author and and how the author's breaking in to tell us things rather than the the son getting annoyed the the grandson getting annoyed and breaking in to tell us he's bored or that he's not liking the kissing scenes and things like that so yeah. like the breaks in the the fourth wall the the breaks that are happening to the audience are more i don't know eloquent i guess yeah. it's like i think it's just it almost feels like in the movie it's it you know it's fun and interesting when he's like come on because you know, if if we were reading the story, maybe we would roll our eyes at the first mention of sort of a, a the the fairy tale that we've heard a million times with the somebody comes to save the day of some princess and they kiss and all that and like I guess breaking in in that way is interesting, but it's much more interesting to me now to read Goldman's original material and hear like him speaking about the intentions of a fake author, like how meta and crazy yeah, that is. That's that's what I was going to say. We're in, he's engaging with this S. Morgenstern, who wrote the book. And he is he himself is like, I, I don't know what he was thinking here with this. And like he's making all these comments on it, um, which is a different meta le- level than what we're getting in the film, like you said. I mean, I do think we should start out. This is like the the most endlessly quotable movie. Let's talk favorite yeah. parts, because I feel like it's just this is the movie to do it in. Is there is there things that tell me your favorite things that stand out? What made you actually laugh? Yeah. Well, I mean, and I do want to resist the urge to just like quote this movie a million times in this episode. Right. That's why I'm giving us an opportunity to do it right now and then we can get it out of the way. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and I think it's one of those things where it's like different things stand out to me different times watching it, you know? Um, yeah. I, I, I tweeted out a, a line where Wesley is talking about why he wears a mask and he says uh, it's super comfortable. I think everyone will be doing it in the future, um, which I thought was funny considering today, like we're all should be wearing masks, wear a mask. Um, and <laughs> I, I thought it was fun that Wesley's like giving us this message from the eighties. Um, so yeah, it changes every time. Um, I mean, there's all the like big ones everyone knows. I'm not going to repeat them here. Honestly, I'm not great at like quoting things word for word and I'll probably screw it up. I haven't seen this movie as many times as you. So mm-hmm. how about you tell me some of your, your favorites? Okay. So, so many that stand out, obviously my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die is like right. one of the most quotable things ever. And that was honestly that was the first huge quotable line for me when I was a kid. I loved that part. I just loved Inigo Montoya. So can I cut in and just mention, talk about that line for a second? Yeah. Um, that line changed it changed dramatically for me after having read the book and researched the book because we talked about last episode. So also we should we should point out in case you don't know, William Goldman, the author of the original novel, is the screenwriter of this movie. So it is very, very consistent as to like who is telling this story It is William Goldman. William Goldman's own father committed suicide when he was in high school, was an alcoholic who committed suicide. And so to me, when I hear that line, I hear Goldman speaking about his own father. And I actually like it hit me differently this time. Like I almost got choked up hearing the line in a way that I never did before. Right. It's simultaneously so sad and so awesome. Um, the like the you're so invested in his revenge or like his avenging yeah. you know journey. I do want to say Mandy Patinkin, who played Inigo, yeah. revealed that uh, acting on Inigo's quest to avenge his father's murder brought back memories of losing his own father to cancer in 1972. He said that when filming the scene when Inigo kills the six finger man, he felt mm-hmm. he had just killed the cancer that killed his father. So another layer. Of That's it. perfect, man. That's exactly because that is what he needs to t- tap into. I think to get at the line. That William Goldman wrote and uh, I think that comes across because that's the moment where it hit me because he says it earlier in the film and it's not that's not when I almost choked up it was that right. moment when he says it with all that passion and before he kills the guy yeah that's that's when it got me yeah just I, and the whole cast we'll just say right now the entire cast is amazing everyone yeah. was perfectly cast Andre the Giant is so lovable and um, he does such a great job as Fezzik right. and um, I, I want to give a shout out to the bonus material that is in the um, the book, uh, the later version of the book, the 25th and 30th year anniversary editions have a short story at the end of them that I won't spoil. Um, but I, I, I really loved what Fezzik gets into basically in those stories. Uh, I think that was one of my favorite parts. Um, so bringing that knowledge to me to watch this movie also just made me have even more affection for, yeah. for Fezzik and Andre the Giant's portrayal of him. I mean, we talked about how like Andre the Giant was larger than what even Goldman had created in a story. So then he went on to write another story, which like furthered the legend. And just like I watched all the bonus, the the special features on on my Blu-ray and I did a bunch of research and just like learning about uh, Andre the Giant and like how 
he you know he's his whole life he was he was doing like wwf wrestling and all of this and like it destroyed his body so by the time they do this movie any of the times that you're seeing feats of strength he actually couldn't support that kind of weight on his back so you can you can find times where it's clear that he's not actually doing the feat of strength there's some sort of like you know support system or somebody's like if like when when um Wesley's like around his neck there's like he's on like a ramp so that he's not actually on his back and all this when he's catching buttercup at the end out of the window there's like a whole board setup situation where he really did catch her but he was like sort of bolted in so that it wouldn't create like pressure on his back anyway wow um yeah. he he was in severe pain during a lot of this movie just due to like his you know his medical condition that like he being that large was it was a condition for him and he he actually died in 1993 at like 47 or 40 something i believe um so like I, I watched a lot of interviews with everybody getting the cast back together and they would all they just love talking about Andre the Giant like he was such mm -hmm. a magnetic character around them and he meant so much to them he was so kind um and so he yeah just to see Goldman take that that persona and that character and like further him in the material again it just warms my heart and that was our interpretation of it at least I don't I don't know if he said that officially but like it felt like to me that version of Fezzik was informed by the the version we saw on screen right i mean it feels it feels that way to me as well there was there are legendary stories of like how much you would drink on set and offset and like how funny that became billy crystal tells a story about fed like about andre the giant being like passed out in a hotel lobby and like nobody they tried to wake him up he wouldn't wake up and like nobody could move him because he's so massive and like just like how i don't know he's just a like kind of a lively person and just like stories like that galore yeah um uh, it just, just so rest in peace, Andre the Giant. He meant yeah. a ton to this movie, obviously a ton to a lot of people. And, uh, from all accounts was just like the nicest guy. And, and you know, what's funny is I think his accent that like is so heavy is just like part of Fezzik, you know, like maybe it yeah. wasn't intentional, but like it fits into that character for me so much now that like, just hearing his voice, it's so fitting for that character. Yeah. He's a particularly deep and like resonant voice that honestly is so deep it's almost difficult to hear the performance he's giving right um i, I don't know if just the version that's on disney plus which by the way if you want to watch this right now it's on disney plus if you have that i think um, it's also partially like his super super thick like i think french accent I believe yeah french. no you're right it's a combination of the two but um the version that i was able to watch this time i felt like had like a great sound quality to where i was able to understand him better than maybe i had in the past because i think there were times in the past where i saw this movie and his lines went by me and i was like what did he say and, right. and that wasn't happening as much here yeah one of the most quoted things for sure is uh bye bye boys have fun storming the castle it's miracle max and his wife talking yeah. to each other um that yeah. always makes me laugh i i think miracle max is one billy of my favorite crystal. parts of this movie as well billy crystal kills it really yeah i, I you know he's funny I, that scene always felt like a weird fit for me like having these two characters show up and right. speak with this like sort of queens <laughs> sort of accent that just to me feels out of place for this medieval world but like you can hand wave that all away of like this is a this is a story being read by a grandfather like it you know what i mean like it kind of yeah. forgives itself of anything because it's like this is a book he's just giving this character this voice or something you know what i mean you could read into it that way and there's some degree to like sort of film history going on here because because there was like I know for a fact that Billy Crystal was sort of channeling some other characters like he's sort of channeling your Mel Brooks characters and some of like so Rob Reiner is the director of this film. His father just passed away. Carl Reiner. He's a legend, uh, comedic actor, legend. Uh, so rest in peace to him. He yeah. uh, was, you know, best friends with Mel Brooks and they were basically, you know, they were huge in, in Hollywood comedy. And I th I'm pretty sure with all that c comedic pedigree flowing through the movie there, I, that like there's some sort of channeling going on there within. And you said like sort of the accent definitely is a little bit out of place. But um, and I say Queens, but I don't know. It's probably something else. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Honestly, That's my be, guess. I, I, I assume that there's something like Jewish within it because yeah, I know like, all of them are Jewish people. That's like Jewish so person, I think it's like person from Queens. Is like, potentially I guess like sort of like a Jewish caricature. And like, I don't, you know, I'm sure that 
I, I'm like almost 100% sure that Mel Brooks is Jewish and, and I think Carl Reiner and Rob Reiner probably... Well, William Goldman is, you know, raised Jewish family. Right. So so like to maybe there's something going on there with, with like them being like representing Jewish people within within their films that they were making. Um, and, and you know, maybe potentially also poking fun at themselves in, in a way. Um, but then again, yeah. I don't really know 100%. Yeah, I don't know. Either. So, <laughs> I, you know, I, I like my grandfather was like almost 100 percent Jewish, like very, very Jewish. Uh, so, and, But I, I wasn't raised Jewish or anything like that. So, like, I can't really tell you. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have the context to tell you. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's part of it, too, for me um, it, is it does feel like it's part of it is like the comedy of the scene is like in the way that they're talking. Right. And any like that sort of comedy always sort of rubs me the wrong way whenever I hear that for any. Um, and maybe that's because I'm a white guy and like I'm I feel like I'm acutely aware that if I'm laughing at a comedian who's doing like an accent or a funny voice, even if mm-hmm. he's like depicting his grandmother or something, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I always feel kind of weird about laughing about that because I'm yeah. like. Am I laughing because this sounds different to me and therefore comical or am I laughing at what is actually being said or the like joke? Com- comedy also has trends and like I think we were born into sort of more of like a I don't know how to like more of a cynical way of looking at comedy too like like sort of the, that that would be seen like that sort of comedy that you're speaking of would be seen as like an older form of comedy that right. we don't necessarily connect to now. Um, yeah. I mean, there are so, comedians like, out there who do this sort of comedy, right? Right. Now. right. Yeah. But I think sometimes it can be seen as a shtick, or like people. Yeah. I think it can be written off. Some people do it yeah. successfully. I'm just well, saying, and like, some people, it's like they do identify as that nationality, and they find that funny because it speaks to their experience. And like, I, I get that. I just right. feel weird as a white guy coming in and laughing at it too. Right. I, I've I, I see what you're saying. That. Yeah, yeah, totally get yeah. that. So I, while we're talking about cast, let's just let's just talk about everybody. Um, Mandy Patinkin, we mentioned as yeah. an ego. I, it's so cool to see him young and spry. And I like, know I this know, like yeah. action star when like I like I think of him in like Homeland or something. Like he's right. this like old grizzled like you know and, and like he's he's like striking Ginyu Force poses in this movie. <laughs> you know he's, what I mean? Like, I know he's it's wild when he's really, doing really some of those some of those uh, fencing scenes or when he was on the boat and he's like pulling the rope at one point. He was doing this like really dramatic pose. Right. I thought it was pretty funny. Just the lunging. I, I don't know. A lot of like uh, when he's like praying to the sword and then using it like a divining rod and then pokes into the door. Like that whole scene is a lot yeah. of fun. Uh, well, the way it was shot was cool too. Though, like from below, and you see the like uh, the sun god rays coming down over his head, uh, which I guess is like a video game thing. But still, it looked cool. And then like it does imply that he is getting a message from his dead father or something because he does end up getting pointed to the tree right to the, to the secret opening yeah. he mandy patinkin said that uh, like you know people obviously come up to him all the time and ask him to say my name is anigo matari you kill my father prepare to die uh-huh. and he says he's like you know two or three people a day will ask me to do it and he says he he says that he loves hearing it um he says like he's thrilled about it and he can't believe that he's in like the wizard of Oz of this generation. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah, just to, you know, sounds like he loves it. You know, he, he, it was, it was, I also heard in an interview that the first time they watched the premiere, he was like crying. He was like weeping because he was just like, so proud of this thing that they'd created. <laughs> um, well, and it felt like, um, honestly, Anigo and Fezzik were more front and center from the beginning in this version which I thought yeah. was a smart change. There was not a lot of time where we were spending with um, the man in black, uh, the farm boy and buttercup before we got to, um, you know, the three arrive and, and kidnap buttercup. Um, that takes a little while in the book to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also a lot more time. It felt like a lot more time goes by where buttercup um, doesn't realize that she has feelings for for the farm boy and continues to treat him like trash right and and like it takes like a bunch of stuff going down and him get he's like gonna get sent away or something before she realizes that she cares about him i like that it was like two lines in the movie before she was like and then he, she realized that she cared about him too and i was like thank you because that stuff was kind of frustrating in the book for sure as much as i've been talking up the book like i remember being frustrated with buttercup in the book and like i i gotta give like just you're making me think of something like i, I gotta give goldwyn credit because within the context of his universe that he created his meta universe that chapter had to be sort of what it was because the son his son stopped reading it right so yeah. like it had to be so like he's within his own narrative maybe making it sort of overly I don't know, flowery or like it was it was sort of spinning its wheels a little bit like and and uh, 
I don't know. Maybe maybe that was purposeful, but yeah, I mean, like we don't get any introduction of like the prince or the count or anybody coming to see Buttercup. Right. We just cut to she's getting introduced to the people too after they leave. So like a lot of that start is 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 shortened. Um, I will say I think the prince is a less interesting character in the movie. He um, he's definitely like full on villain in in both versions, and um, he just seems like much more of sort of a I don't know. He's just a loser in the movie. Yeah. Whereas in the book, like, the guy has a zoo of death where he goes in and, like, wrestles bears and giant cobras and shit. Like, he's he's way more dangerous in the book. Yeah, he's got some intimidation that you could actually feel, whereas, like, this version, yeah. you know that anyone can beat him, basically. Yeah, you're like, goes who's up this guy? <laughs> yeah, he's a stand a chance. I, I want to talk about Robin Wright as... Uh, buttercup and we talked mm-hmm. last week I, I talked last week and basically said she was more in on the joke and the movie was sort of what i was remembering and mm-hmm. i don't know that that necessarily f- really holds true i do feel like she is a little bit more in on the joke still than the book but but in ver- both versions she doesn't have a ton to do she's definitely just sort of the damsel in distress princess mm-hmm. character being saved yeah. um but I, I mean robin wright kills it in the performance regardless like i still think that she's pretty magnetic on screen and and um yeah agree i i think that you know with what she was given she was memorable you know and that's yeah. maybe tough to do within sort of the the archetype of a princess in distress uh, i just remember her uh in the in the water with the shrieking eels which i thought was a good change yeah. uh in the book i believe it was just sharks yeah it was. um and then here it was like we're gonna sort of invent a, a a creature like you know setting up the rous's later so it's not the first time that this happens and then uh they look pretty they're pretty like, freaky scary yeah they're freaky. Even pretty freaky i mean clearly like big big puppet things but still yeah. uh and then yeah it getting sort of knocked out by by fezzik is cool like it shows like an early moment of him sort of saving her life right i, I mean while we're talking about that scene we should talk about wallace sean as vizzini um yeah now he is he's he is the character that i was like this character could have gone so bad (laughs) um but somehow he's enjoyable even though he's definitely a shit and like he's the only real villain in these three like you love the other two guys pretty much right off the bat they seem like great solid guys definitely Um, but he he's the villain um i actually forgot that like the whole plot of like we're gonna set up gilder and start a war and then the reveal that the prince was behind it um all along i didn't remember that that was all in the movie i thought that that was like a book only plot or yeah. some of that like got omitted but it's all in there i just never paid attention to it as a movie mm-hmm. watcher i don't know why yeah i mean it, i think they do pretty good with vizzini um he wallace sean's voice is yeah. forever linked to Vizzini. Like when I was yeah. reading the pages, when we were reading the book, I heard Walsh on and I was just like, <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. inconceivable, yeah. like no one can do that voice. But he's, you know, apparently too, what's interesting is um, in the scene where they're actually doing the, the switcheroo yeah. with the wine, he's oh, like sweating. That reminds me of one of my favorite lines. Should I say it? Or yeah, go for it. Into the... <laughs> yeah, please go for it. It was where he says, uh, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, morons <laughs> yeah. i love the look that the man in black wesley at the point at that point gives him to he's just like mm, really he's like morons oh, eh? oh, oh, okay yeah yeah just good stuff i mean uh like i said the voice he he's so iconic to the role but apparently danny devito was the first choice to play the role oh that's funny and, and apparently he was stressed out by this while sean sort of felt like he was gonna get fired off the movie at any time and the scene where they're the, with the wine he's like sweating profusely i guess and it was like partially due to like the number of takes that it took and they just couldn't get it right and he was freaking out like he was gonna get fired i guess um but really interesting to think because you know i could see danny devito in that role but it would be different i think Wallace sean brought what was necessary he would have brought his own his own uh, spin to it. That would have been fun, though. Yeah. I think he would have been good. But this this is definitely this feels right. I mean, it is the way that they went, so it feels right. Um, I I did think that there was a particularly funny moment. I'm not going to quote him anymore because I feel like I've hit my <laughs> I've already hit my threshold on just quoting this movie. I think at this point, but um, when uh, when when Fezzik is climbing up the the cliffs of insanity, and he's just doing the full arm climb, which it was right out of the book. Um, I thought it was pretty funny how they had Vincini, Vincini like it right in his face so that he's climbing with his arms around him 
up the rope, and he's just like right in his face, like taunting him and telling right. him to climb faster and All stuff. Right, and you, it just it looks so goofy, but like it was it was fun. I don't know. Right. So obviously they had to rig all that because Andre the Giant yeah. couldn't take any of that weight on his back. Yeah, I thought he so was probably just standing on the ground for that particular yeah. <laughs> moment. But well, yeah, I, I think so. They did a lot of like miniature work. They did a lot of yeah, like stunt doubles. You and could stuff tell like on that. the HD that, that there was some miniatures going on right. for sure. Um, you know, backdrops like set set backdrops. Um, yeah. you could tell that there was painted. Like the sunset was painted and yeah stuff. definitely like that, yeah. uh so there's a story that i heard uh, in the bonus in the special features about wallace sean being deathly afraid of heights but then they needed all the actors to actually physically go up the wall on one take and like a forklift would sort of lift them up over time and bring them up the, uh-huh. up the cliff face and he could not he's like i will not do this this i'm gonna ruin the movie i can't do it it's over i'm not doing it and andre the giant in his very thick accent like said do not worry, I will protect you. And like was stroking his face. And then they, he did that as they like were rising up <laughs> during the take or something like that. And then they went back up and down a few times in order to get the takes. And Wallace Shawn, like reportedly, was was fine the entire time that Andre was like comforting him. <laughs> I mean, he's a, he is a man who could hold you, a, grand, a grown man in his arms, and you would feel like a, a, an infant right. if he did that. Yeah. So I can see how that would be comforting. <laughs> right. So... Great story. Uh, one more character we need to talk about. Carrie Ells as Wesley. He was cast because he has like the good looks to go along with sort of the quippiness and the swashbuckling that goes on the sword fighting, which I d- I'm going to talk about the sword fighting. We're going to get to that. He, he, but he had to have gotten Robin Hood men in tights. Because he, of this. That's him, right? He right. had to have gotten that because of this. Right? Yes, totally. And I was going to I was gonna get into that. So Rob Reiner wanted sort of the Douglas Fairbanks, uh, Errol Flynn, like, you know 1920s 1930s like swashbuckling kind of thing um and so apparently because you know he really fit the bill he had the looks he had the he could do sort of do a lot of the swashbuckling sword fighting um and then he had the the quippy and he understood the comedy so he cast him for that reason um and then yeah just uh douglas fairbanks and errol flynn both played robin hood Fairbanks played him in 1922's Robin Hood, and then Flynn played him in The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938, and then Ells would would later spoof their performances in Robin Men, Robin Hood Men in Tights in 1993. Mm-hmm. So sort of I bet you that movie does not hold up well at all, but I, I have fun memories of watching it. Yeah, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I have not seen it in you know forever. I haven't seen it since probably like 2000. So I don't know yeah. if it holds up. I bet it doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> but but still, I'll just—it's one of those movies that's probably just l- best left in the past as right. a, just a fond memory. I also uh, <laughs> found out that the Dread Pirate Roberts was a real pirate. Did you did you hear about this at all? I did not know that. That's funny too because I've heard about a lot of pirates. Yeah, so I would have thought I recognize it. Bartholomew Roberts, also known as Black Bart, who operated in the Caribbean in the early 18th century. I think century. I've heard of Black Bart. I've heard of Blackbeard for sure, and I know that's not him, but I, right. I think I have also heard of Blackbeard. I just didn't Supposedly, know he's called the Dread Pirate. According to this, you know, factoid that I found here, he is reckoned by m- many to have been the most successful pirate of all time. So I wonder if there was any uh, conspiracy theories that he was multiple people. Right. I wonder. Yeah, that'd be fun. I, I feel like I've heard that about somebody. I can't. I don't know if it was Blackbeard or somebody else or somebody. I feel like this is a thing I've heard of that, that people thought that there might have been more than one of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I believe it. I mean, it makes sense, right? To continue the yeah. legacy and be that dangerous. Well, sense. and then there's also impersonators. So right. even if you're not officially the new whatever, like you mm-hmm. just say you are because they have the name ID, right? And you want people to just surrender and not try and fight you. Right, for the same reason that Wesley yeah. did it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I they're did... pirates, so the, you know, there are no rules. Just do right. whatever you want. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, I just, we're finishing up cast right now. I just wanted to say there were a couple people who were going to play Fezzik at different times. So apparently Arnold Schwarzenegger was vying for the role. He really wanted yeah. it in the early seventies when it was first being pitched yeah. around. Um, and then by the eighties when they actually were able to get, cause this, this movie was stuck in development hell for a while. And when they were able to finally get it made, Arnold was the biggest movie star in the world and he was too expensive. So they couldn't get him anymore. And when Andre the giant was busy doing his WWF stuff. Once he had finished that, he was available to actually take on the role. But apparently at one point, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was offered the role. Which, wow. That's amazing. Like that would also, it would have changed the movie completely, but that would have been crazy, right? That would have been really cool. Yeah. So I definitely want to talk about Rob Reiner briefly, and then um, we can talk about plot and sort of some other behind the scenes stuff that I learned and other stuff like that, that we can analyze the movie a little more. Rob Reiner is an American actor, comedian, and filmmaker. As an actor, Reiner first came to national prominence with the role of Michael Stivic 
on the CBS comedy All in the Family, a performance that earned him two Primetime Emmy Awards. As a director, Reiner was recognized by the Directors Guild of America Awards with nominations for the coming-of-age drama Stand By Me in 1986, the romantic comedy... Go ahead. It's a Stephen King thing, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, the romantic comedy When Harry Met Sally in 1989 and the military courtroom drama A Few Good Men in 1982, the last of which earned him a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Picture. He has also received four nominations for the Golden Globe Award for Best Director. His other major directorial film credits include heavy metal rock mockumentary This Is Spinal Tap 1984, the romantic comedy fantasy adventure The Princess Bride, the psychological horror thriller Misery in 1990, the romantic comedy drama The American President 1995, the buddy comedy The Bucket List 2007, and the biographical political drama LBJ in 2016. So I wanted to talk specifically about This Is Spinal Tap because um, I think up to that point he had made, up to the point of Princess Bride, he had made This Is Spinal Tap, and I think he had shot but hadn't released Stand By Me or something like that. Some... So this was pretty early on in his directorial career, you're saying? Right, yeah. and then When Harry Met Sally wasn't until after The Princess Bride, so sort of right in the middle. And for him to get this film made, so the, so the reason he pursued Princess Bride is he was, a, he was a huge fan of the book, apparently. His father, Carl Reiner, who I spoke about earlier, um, realized that reiner rob reiner would enjoy the book because he enjoyed all of goldman's other stuff and goldman and reiner were working on something together at the time and so then he was able to take that book to rob reiner and say here read this and then he loved it for for a long time and then he released this is spinal tap and then during production of stand by me um he spoke with executives at paramount regarding princess bride and they told him he couldn't make it leading to him discovering that several studios had previously attempted to bring this book to the to the big screen. Um, I was pretty surprised at the people who were attached to it. So other directors at different times who were looking to adapt this, this story were Francois Truffaut, who we've talked about. Uh, we actually talked about him on a bonus episode. Fahrenheit 451, right? Yeah, we talked about him on our Fahrenheit 451 bonus episode. Um, yeah. Hugely influential for French New Wave um, and that one's out on the main feed if you look back through the uh, From the Vault. I think that's one of our From the Vault episodes we have released. Right. So he was looking to direct. Robert Redford was looking to direct at one point, And also Norman Jewison was were looking to direct. And it, and also Christopher Reeve was interested in playing Wesley. Okay. So, yeah, I could see that. He, he had that charisma. Yeah. And so it's really interesting that, you know, he had made, this is Spinal Tap, he was trying to get this movie made. And then Norman Lear, who's hugely influential in television history, um, knew Reiner from All in the Family and basically was able to get the funding for Princess Bride because he, you know, was able to pull his Hollywood magic. But basically, um, Goldman was able to see that Reiner would be able to understand, he could, he could adapt it because of this is Spinal Tap and and a romantic film that he he had made right before and i think what's really interesting is like rob reiner created one of the first mockumentary films and and goldman was able to look at are you familiar with this is spinal tap at all i haven't seen it but i am familiar with it yeah so i've seen enough about it to kind of know what it's about right so shows like the office oh this is spinal tap for sort of their whole format the framing device um and for him to for Goldman to look and see that this director who created this and then also created a, a romance that he could blend the two and create Princess Bride and find the right tone takes a lot of trust I think because like this is Spinal Tap is still holds up and it's funny to me I saw it a few years ago but I, it's not the same kind of comedy as this movie so it's really interesting to see the range of what Reiner has been able to to do throughout his career it, you know mostly sim kind of sticking to some some comedy at least but moving into a lot of different stuff. And uh, I don't know. I couldn't believe that all these people were attached to Princess Bride at different times. And it took 10 years for it to get adapted because I think studios just really didn't know what to do with it. They couldn't figure out how it could be adapted or what it would even look like, who you could sell it to, that sort of thing. So he seems like a director that really has some some range. Like, I mean, you, you listed some, some pretty heavy dramas in there. He's got all these comedies. Um, that's an impressive list of movies, even though I haven't seen all of them. But... Um, you know, it's cool to see that someone who can 
not get sort of pigeonholed as like this is the only kind of film you can make yeah um i, I just like to see that and, and i mean later later like more recent films that have come out he's gotten very political with his movies and like is really trying to like you know be an activist with with what he's doing so i mean power to him for doing that because like he you know he started with a lot of comedy and realized like he could you know create movies of, of all sorts he kind of reminds me not as much the comedy elements but something about his like everyman director sort of thing reminds me of like a yeah. ron howard or like because he was like a child star or like a younger star that eventually turned to directing and directed his their list is really diverse in terms of like what they cover so um mm-hmm. reminds me of him some cool all right so let's start talking about i think we're just going to move chronologically we're not going to do specifically a summary but i do want to talk about you know events that happen and we can sort of talk about sure. Um, you know the changes and and like how we felt about the scenes i i also do want to kind of shout out just in general the the set design is you you mentioned like for the time like the matte paintings of course are there you've got your yeah. you've got your that's okay yeah though. but a lot of like the sort of like even the forest that they're that when they're going through the fire swamp he's cutting through the yeah. limbs and stuff it seems like it's all set to me. right it is all set but like yeah. they, they dress it up to look really good and and for it the most good. part like you know they went for it there it wasn't like it weirdly reminded me a little bit of another project we've covered can you can you think of what it might have reminded me of if weirdly huh the the fire swamp specifically yeah the fire swamp in particular was it uh enemy mine it was yeah. <laughs> good pull nice. yeah pulled it. it was that is that 80s sort of like everything is is this like crafted set you get the yeah. little kind of puppets and right you got guys and wearing wearing rat suits <laughs> yeah which we, we're, you know? we'll get to that um but yeah i can see that i i i don't know how i pulled that but somehow i did that's so. funny yeah so we've kind of touched on you know the beginnings at the farm and then you know he goes off and dies supposedly and let's let's catch all the way back up to sort of the cliffs of insanity we talked about mm-hmm. the we talked about the screeching eels um when they actually get up this cliff of insanity um the sword fight that happens there rob reiner specifically went about saying this is going to be the greatest sword fight the longest sword fight of all time um so apparently in order to create the greatest sword fight in modern times carrie ells and mandy patinkin trained for months with peter diamond and bob anderson who between them had been in the olympics worked on james bond raiders of the lost ark and star wars uh they coached errol and they they coached errol flynn and bert lancaster Every spare moment on set was spent practicing. Eventually, they showed Rob Reiner the sword fight for the movie. He was underwhelmed and requested that it be at least three minutes longer rather than the current one minute. They added steps to the set, watched more swashbuckling movies for inspiration, re-choreographed the scene, and ended up with a three-minute, ten-second fight, which took the better part of a week to film from all angles. Um, wow. And to me, the most, the most fascinating part is that when you look, you can see that it's really them. You know what I mean? It's yeah. almost entirely them. There are, you know, there's the moment where the man in black like jumps on the thing and flips around Does the a, bar yeah, and yeah. like flies off. Uh, like clearly that wasn't him. But all the sword fighting, all the choreography as far as like slapping the sword away and poking each other, yeah. that sort of thing. Manny Patinkin probably didn't do that jump over his head, twist and tuck and land on his feet that <laughs> right. he does at one point right yeah I, there's a couple of moments where you know it's a stuntman but other than that it seemed like it was all them but like that that sort of choreography is really fun to watch like because yeah. it's it's oh, real no, it's a great fight i think it looks great i think it holds up um and yeah like you said the fact you know what that and and, and that's a good point just as like a moderate <laughs> a moment to sort of soapbox for a second is that um man there's no, nothing beats like a take where you can see the moves in an action movie yeah and rather than one move cut one move cut one move cut one move cut i i've started getting so frustrated with those kind of fights and like i know that they can work for people but like they they just turn me off so bad when someone gets on like an elevator or something and they get in a fight and there's 75 cuts and you know it's like it's not 75 but it's like five or ten cuts in a in a 30 seconds you know thing instead of like a one to two cut like show some moves show some choreography right and I, I, I mean, I know it's hard, but like it, it works so much better, man. Exactly. It's it's how hard are you willing to work, right? Like on set, it's easier to shoot a bunch of little shots and cut it together yeah. and make it look One really action packed. Another punch. Exactly. A leg kick. Everyone a separate take that you can do multiple times and get just right. And then, but then it's super choppy and it doesn't feel real to right. me. The choreography is so difficult. You have to dedicate yourself to that. And like, that's why it's so impressive, you know, because they yeah. did spend. It just gives me more uh, appreciation for the Daredevil hallway scene from season one. Yeah. Great scene. 
great scene uh you were talking about crazy cuts in action movies and stuff and it always i always laugh when i watch this scene from taken um you know liam neeson is like an older man at this point when taken's being made uh-huh. and he has to like jump over a fence and there's like 30 cuts for him to jump over this fence and for it to look like <laughs> action-packed so like he's they're like coming different angles and choo, 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 and he like is just jumping over a fence and it's it's very very funny to me every time i see it uh that's okay. sort of what I think of when I think of like cut like way too heavily cut and and you know for that I guess in that case you they, you have to forgive him a little bit because he's an older man who it would be tough to jump yeah. over a fence. Sometimes you have to do it but, because of limitations like that. But yeah. it's still funny. It doesn't prevent it from being funny to me because like it's he. It, well, it's I a will. Lot the cut. other thing I think is that sometimes directors need to let go of perfection, which is probably really tough for people to do. But I think people get too obsessed with, I want every moment of this fight to look exactly how I want it to look. And if I do one take, I won't get that. There'll be some sort of like sloppiness in there. Something won't be as crisp as I want it to be. But that is good. Keep it. It's more authentic. I don't know. I, I like that. Sometimes, yeah. It. It's got to look good, though. You know what I mean? It's still got to look... Yeah, it can't like, look bad. Right. That, that is the thing. It can't look terrible, but... But... A little bit I of, agree, like, yeah. uh, that wasn't as crisp is fine if it, if, it, if it feels more authentic to a fight to me. Right. I, it's not that there weren't cuts in this fight, either. There clearly were. It's just, like, they extended No, extended and there are. It, it, it wasn't, like, one long cut or anything. Right. But, yeah, there were long moments of them actually having real swordplay. Right. It wasn't swing cut, swing it's cut. It's very cut. impressive to me because th- that's not their trade. You know, they're actors. They're then they're there yeah. to act, and then on top of that, yeah. they take it upon themselves, and the act and the director tells them that he wants this scene, and they go for it. And and you know what? I love watching that scene because it's so so kinetic. Like it feels so yeah. real. So. It's a great one. And then the other thing too, it's a fight between two characters we really like. Right. You know, so that's really interesting, too, right? It's not a moment where it's one guy is going to beat the shit out of the guy that you hate or he's just a goon or he's just, you know, like final boss number two, final sub boss number two who happens to be really good at martial arts or whatever. Like he's he's a character you really, really like. And you're like, well, what, what's going to happen here? They're fighting to the death. Right. You know, and so it gives some cool sort of stakes to the whole moment. So uh, moving into the bait and switch of the of the wine uh, with the poison. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think if anybody ever were to say, like, put me in the same situation and say, I, I want to know actually from you, if if you had to pick one of the two glasses and you didn't know that they uh-huh. were both poisoned, psychologically, like, which one are you taking? <laughs> well, it's impossible. And that's what I love about the scene. It's an impossible problem he's set up to where, um, and, and I think, uh, you know, other than the fact that he's super ham-handed about it and obvious, the idea uh, Vizzini has to make him look away and swap the cups and then watch his reaction is probably the best play you can make. Right. Because if you notice, he kind of hesitates for a moment as they pick up the cups. Like, that's the best play you can make at that point. Because ultimately, there's no way you can suss out, in my opinion, which which glass is which, because there's a million reasons why he could have chosen either, either one. And he he outlines a bunch of them. And any one of them could be the reason that he chose, but it's going to be one of them and it can't, but it can't be all of them. Right. It has to be one or the other if it wasn't just one. Um, So I think he does play it the best way you could, you know, and to credit to him, it just, he just is outcrafted because he, in that moment thinks that the other guy's not going to cheat because that's something that he doesn't seem like he, the kind of person who would do, but he does because he out cheats the cheater, I guess. Right. And that's why we're okay with that. Yeah, that's just and it's just a fun scene and the inconceivable it's all and the, the misuse of it and then like the calling out of that and all of that's from and all of that's from the book too. Oh my god. I mean, talk about fucking like memes that you'll see on the internet everywhere. Right. <laughs> like the you keep using that word like that one is Yeah, I do not I think it means what you think it everywhere. means. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. good. All right, let's move into the fire swamp and let's talk about the R- I had a question R-U-S. about the fire swamp. Um I don't know if you saw this and any of the materials you have or it's just a mystery Mm -hmm. how did they create a sand pit that could someone could jump head first into and not hurt themselves yeah i mean i think clearly the whole the whole set that they're on is elevated because they're having to shoot fire from underneath it too so he went through like some sort of thing and like landed on a pad or was it like a pool down there or what (laughs) i assume underneath it's probably you know those like pits with like he went head first first, yeah that was probably a stunt double i'll say that for sure 
Yeah, probably was. But still, even anybody to do that, man, that's, that's yeah. scary. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, I just would assume pit of pit of foam, but who really knows? Maybe there's a thing of water underneath there. Yeah, and just maybe dove a pit, into pit it. of foam would probably would probably work pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I was trying to figure it out. I was like, it's a cool effect they were able to achieve. You're right. I think the whole thing's probably elevated that in that moment so that they could create that. It was cool. Yeah. All right. R-O-U-S. <laughs> yeah. What do we think? Those are fun, man. And they're so much bigger because I, I feel like, they, I don't know if they change sizes or if it's just the perspective at one point or what, but it seemed like they got bigger and bigger. And then but when he's fighting it, it's full on as big as he is. Yeah. It's a, it's a person, <laughs> yeah. a rat co- you know, costume. And it really <laughs> is. Yeah. There were people in there. Yeah. Um, I, For sure. <laughs> the, one of the funniest parts that always, 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 at least gives me, at least gives me a chuckle is when she, she's like, what about the R-O-U-S? And he's like, oh, I don't oh, believe yeah. they're real. <laughs> and he just gets immediately. I don't, yeah. I, I don't even think they exist or something like that. It's so they good. Immediately tackled. It's so that, funny. That, that is laugh out loud funny. I agree um yeah and like the fire swamp looks really good like we've said uh and then to move into i want to talk about the pit the pit of despair uh there's this moment where the grandfather is reading the book and he he says like no no continue continue and he says let's see where were we oh yes in the pit of despair and i immediately thought like oh that's every day that we wake up during the pandemic (laughs) (laughs) let's see where were we oh yes the pit of despair oh yes (laughs) as soon as you open up twitter oh yes now i remember I mean, it's funny because it's such a generalized location, right? Of course, like any fantasy, yeah. like like your your fairy tale is gonna have like your 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 typical sort of name like that, and it's so funny yeah. because it, it you know like you said it serves kind of serves two purposes, especially today. How about the machine? Like, do you feel like the suction looked like it's really gonna suck some some years off your life, or what do you think? Like, <laughs> I feel like that was probably one of the hardest things to try to pull off in camera, like to to make a machine because clearly it doesn't necessarily work. It's kind of like it's kind of campy and like it's fine for that reason yeah oh it's super campy but i mean it's fine i think it works for this movie yeah um you know a lot of that stuff is is very tongue-in-cheek it's very silly um the albino and like uh the way that he he is he's such a character right he's you know cracking jokes and stuff um making really you know certain faces that are they're quite comical um all that whole sequence is is uh kind of goofy but but still effective What's the name of the uh, the person who helps Doctor Frankenstein? I can't think of him. Oh, uh, Igor. Igor, yeah, that's sort of the Igor of the Pit of Despair, right? Very much. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, I, I I wanted to talk about how. Yeah, I think we've basically gotten to the end now. If there's, is there anything else you want to talk about? I guess I guess we can talk about how how wild it is to have like a resurrective element to the story, but it kind of it happens in the book too. It's a um, very fantasy thing to do, man. Fantasy, Think about all yeah. the fantasies where people come back. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like the Weekend at Bernie's antics that, that got on at the end with, with Wesley, the sort of like limp, you know, mastermind of the whole rescue at the end. I think that was a lot of fun um, and, and continues to be to be co- quite comical. Right. And the end, the, the last sort of feud between the prince and Wesley uh, at the very end when they're in his chamber or whatever. And uh, yeah. he's like actually like you know, bluffing and sort of holding the sword to him and everything right. and telling him to tie. Which that is right out of the book. And and honestly, I feel like it works better in the movie because exactly. the guy isn't as formidable. Yeah. I was kind of surprised when it went down that way in the book, but um, just because the character had been set up to be very different than right. that. But, and I do um, think, I, 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 I can't remember for sure, but I can't remember in the book that he even stands. I think he stays in the bed the whole time. So I felt like standing, I think he up, does too. standing up and actually moving made it a little more yeah. like I could buy it more. And then, yeah, the fact that he's sort of like not the same prince as, as the murderous death zoo one. Yeah. Uh, yeah now, when we talked about this scene earlier, but we, we are arrived there in the, in the, in the fiction. So I want to know if there's anything else you, you have to say about it, but the, uh, the confrontation with the six fingered man, um, the way he runs away and then throws the dagger. Like it's a great, like sort of all is lost moment for the for the story right like the black moment people call it different things like that where you can't believe like how like he's finally found this guy and then he's gonna get he's gonna die is what it seems like right and then he's able to sort of power through it and like the the uh the power of his vengeance is able to like overcome the wounds that he's taken right as he's bleeding from both arms and from his i mean it makes for good drama that's what I'll say about yeah. it. You know, like it's good. I enjoy it within the context of this story, and it works because it's in the, the you know within the context of this story. And and I like otherworldly yeah. 
you know, I like the internals of a character affecting the outer world and like this yeah. idea that his willpower allowed him to best. It's this believable person. too, yeah. you know. It can be adrenaline, you know, it can happen. Sure. I like it. I I just want to touch on that scene again. It's a good scene. It's a good scene. One and of my favorites from the end. I, I also really like um this idea from the movie that as they're jumping out the window, uh, Inigo says, you know, I've been looking for vengeance for so long. I don't know who I am without it. And then he's like, you'd make a good, you know, Dread Pirate Rogers and, and all of that. I think that's cool. That Roberts. idea. Roberts. I said Rogers. <laughs> oh, boy. Good Dread Pirate Aaron Rogers. <laughs> oh, Dread Rogers. The Jolly Roger Dread. Um, yeah. No, no. Anyway, I, I, I don't know. I'm mixed about that. Like. I Inigo becoming a pirate like right. I don't know I mean I guess I'm glad he doesn't like full on accept it but it is the implication that he's gonna become a pirate and like I guess we're supposed to believe in this world it's the romantic version of a pirate right like it's not it's not super violent all the time like raping and horrible, pillaging like horrific yeah. life yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but I, I want something like I want like something nice for an ego that's not violent I don't know I, personally I, specifically with that scene the thing I like is like the idea that he's now found like I, I think the the moral of the story of like the idea that he's searched for vengeance for so long and now it's gone and like yeah. who is he without it and like just like you know like wasting your life away running after something vengeance or whatever yeah. like harboring just that. reminds me of that story that's in the deluxe version i mean i know it's out of time out of sequence but yeah. we do get this like scene about an ego having a romantic connection which i really liked and it was like something that i really wanted from that character and then we know a little bit about what goes on with him but right. you'll have to read the book if you want to hear about that or at least listen to our episode where we talk about it yeah. last episode <laughs> <laughs> so uh last thing i want to talk about is mandy patankin went to a screening and he said there was like no one in the theater and it seems like that was the story of the premiere and not not the premiere but the release yeah. of this film was that people was it kind of a flop it, it kind of was i don't know that it fully yeah. flopped like i don't know that it didn't recoup any any money or anything like that i didn't look to see the actual numbers but i know it didn't it, it didn't you know become what it is until home release and it, I, you know it's very interesting to think about um how important home releases used to be for movies and and the way that the cult following could could be so organic and like the world yeah. we live in word now with release and i know world of, word of mouth i think it just happens around. faster now you know what i mean it's like accelerated if something is really good you're gonna hear about it because people are gonna get on twitter and you're gonna hear about it fast whereas that took a while to build up i think right well and and like is there something to be said about like people weren't ready for the movie then I guess my question is like if it came when it came out if audiences weren't ready for it the fact that it took a long time for it to get popular and then audiences developed into it and now it's like such a massive cultural touchstone can that still happen with it or or do these movies that come out now are they watched and then forgotten and then not given that sort of like second life when people when the audience matures into that movie those sort of movies that that I think were a before their time sort of thing um i think it can still happen i think it might look a little different now yeah um would be my only guess about what might have changed but yeah I'll, i want to believe that that's still that still can happen yeah i mean so do Personally. i so do i i just i just wonder <laughs> that's that's really just me wondering yeah no i, I get it i get it yeah i don't know i i, I want to think so so we need to take our final vote that is something we've been doing this year uh trying to decide whether or not we felt like the book or the movie was better i'm I'm ready to go first. If you yeah, if I mean you cool can again. go first. Well, let me just okay. let me just start. I won't say my answer, but I do want to say I'm super conflicted with this one. I'm that's where I'll leave it. I'm very conflicted, and uh, I haven't I haven't fully I didn't make my decision before, and like sort of the conversation. I'm gonna make it just based on everything right now. Um, but I want okay. you to go first. Well, d don't let me affect you too much. I want you to make no. Your I decision, won't. I, I know. I already. I I have my answer now. I'm just saying okay, like before right. up okay, until good. this point, I hadn't really locked it in, and now I have it. All right. So. Uh, this movie's great, and I think reading the book has helped me see that it's great. I think before I felt like it was good, um, I felt like it was funny, but I didn't see what, like, the huge deal was, you know, because a lot of people really love this movie, and I, I wasn't quite there. Um, I think reading the book really helped me get there. Um, the, I had a lot of fun talking about it, I had a lot of fun with the performances, iconic scenes, iconic, uh, direction, this whole episode, is the exhibit of that, but I think you know where this is going. Uh, that book was incredible. Um, I did not expect to like it as much as I did. 
Um, I prefer the framing device in the book. I like being on the author's side, which might not surprise anyone. Um, I like seeing it from that perspective. Um, and then I really like the additional materials, but I'm going to actually remove, I'm going to remove uh, Buttercup's baby from the sort of arithmetic here. Um, because I love that, that piece, but I don't think it's fair to let that tip it over. I think just on the material alone, I still am going to let the book edge out the movie for me as the better version of this, which I would have never guessed going into this project that I, that I would feel this way, but I, I actually do. Yeah. That's just me. I mean, the, I've said, this is one of my favorite movies. Uh, I, and I've also said it's a movie that grows with you. So like I saw it when I was pretty young and it's grown with me. It's like I haven't matured out of it. It's not one of these like kids movies that I saw and I can't watch anymore. I have yeah. it's be it's been like a it's been steadfast. It's always been there um, and it will be for a long time. I'm going to continue to love watching it. Reading the book recontextualized a lot of stuff for me, though. And I think the I, I was again, I agree with you. It was I was blown away by the book. Um, the. I'm not going to take the Butter- Buttercup's baby and like the preface and, and sort of like the two introductions out of the arithmetic because I am going to give it to the book because of everything together. Um, I think, really? yeah, okay. I think I'm, I think I'm giving it to specifically the person who's approaching stories, the, like me, myself today, who is looking at stories in this, in this way and thinking about which one is the, which one's like, I think the tightrope act of what he, what, Goldman was able to accomplish in the book is more impressive to me and and I love the movie <laughs> like do not get me wrong I'm like edging it out by ever so much both things are great but I think I'm taking book for the sheer fact that almost everything comes straight out of the book and also those additional materials serve to like create this really interesting world that's like a fake like our world but it's like a fake version of it and then in and then there's also the world of the story and just like the yeah, the way that the author is interacting with the audience, uh, it's it's a unique story, and I it's clearly super influential, and I know the movie yeah. is as well, and those performances are like unforgettable. But I'm taking the book. Wow, I did not expect that. Uh, but I mean, I'm right there with you, and uh, you know, th- it's something I don't know that we mentioned last time was how how he he in those extra materials. Well, I'll gauge with that for a moment. He takes the book, the, the sorry, he takes the movie and wraps it right into the to the narrative, right? right? Like it becomes part of the mythos. Right. He meets with Andre the Giant in Florin City, this fictional city, and has this conversation with him, which I don't know if it actually occurred or not. Like he he sort of uh, the way that he is sort of telling truth, but also fictionalizing, and it's very difficult to tell the difference between the two. Um, it's just really cool. Right. And then, yeah, he takes this whole adaptation, rolls it right into it without any, you know, without missing a beat and it becomes part of this whole grand story. Um, it's truly an impressive work. And I know it's one that we talked about last week that William Goldman felt like it was kind of his like crowning achievement. You know, it was, it was, it was right there. And, um, I can see that. I can see why you felt that way. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I feel good about it. Um, I think this is a good place to end our princess bride coverage. Um, do stick around for the end of the episode though, because we're going to announce our next project, um, which I am excited about. Yeah, I'm also really excited about this project. This week, we wanted to thank one of our newest patrons, Sarah H. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. We really appreciate your support. And if you also, listener, wanted to help support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film. We have all kinds of tiers. Um, everything from $1 up. And with with the $2 tier, you get our bonus episodes, which come out monthly. And we also wanted to say, with it being our three-year anniversary and everything, we are going to be rolling out new things for Patreon, new things for the show in general. So keep your eyes out for those. We promise they're coming very soon. They're just not quite ready to roll out right this second. So you know, in a celebration of our three years, there will be some changes and some new stuff coming. Yeah, uh, over the I would say over the rest of the year, we're going to be making some changes. We'll see how it timeline, how it goes. But yeah, uh, there's going to be some new t- some new tiers, some new options, some changing of some things. Keep an eye on that. You can follow us on there if you're not ready, ready to make a commitment that you can just follow us on Patreon and that'll like keep you appraised of what's going on. Um, but yeah, we appreciate any support that people are willing to give us. Um, but if, you know, if, if, if money is not your thing and you'd rather just listen to it for free, that's fine. We would love it if you left us a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use. Helps us get the word out and lets people know that this is a show worth listening to. 
And make sure you connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. On Facebook, we have the Council of Inklings. We post polls and any sort of adaptation news that we see. Um, so it's a good way to stay connected. We are going to be covering a, a new movie that a lot of people are excited about. I've been hearing a lot of buzz about based off of a series of comics, The Old Guard on Netflix. I don't know much else about it other than it's got some like immortal characters or something. I don't know. I've been hearing great things. I haven't been looking too much into it because I, I knew it might be something we'd cover. So um, I'm excited to see if I if I love it as much as like I've been hearing people love it. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, anytime we can cover any like graphic novels or comics of any kind, it's it's always adds like an interesting element that we don't get to do all the time. It'll be cool. We just purchased our copies. Uh, I saw a little preview of the art in there. It looks exciting. It looks interesting. So I'm into it. All right. So I did want to say before everybody goes, bye-bye. Have fun storming the castle. And until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.